Friends, if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Continuing our series in the Gospel according to Luke. Today we're in Luke 17. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 19. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. and ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus, beginning in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that You are a God who speaks. We do not take it for granted that we have Your Word, that we have it in our own language, that we have it, Father, in a place that is free and enables us to gather together to consider what it says and what You have spoken and what You've revealed concerning Yourself. And so we take none of these things for granted, God. And we know that to whom much is given, much is required. So the responsibility that we have today to hear the Word of God is very great. And yet our need, Father, for Your Spirit's help is equally as great. And so with humble hearts, Father, we pray for illumination, that we would know savingly the things that You have revealed. We pray for discernment, that You would help us to hold fast to the truth. We pray for faithfulness, God that you would keep me from error, and that your church would be edified and built up and strengthened today. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, to set the stage for Luke 17, I'd like for you to think with me about the Old Testament for a moment, and Psalm 116 in particular. It may be a while since you've read Psalm 116. So let me remind you of what it's about. Psalm 116 celebrates the unfailing mercy of God. And throughout the psalm, the psalmist remembers how his life was close to death. The snares of death encompassed me, the psalmist says. But our God is merciful, he remembers. The Lord delivers him, and it's a very moving meditation on what God has done. Towards the end of that psalm, The psalmist asks what I consider to be the key question of his meditation, and it's also the question that connects with our passage today. The psalmist asks, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? In other words, what can I give back to you, God? What should I do to honor you? How can I ever repay the debt that I owe you? A few verses later, the psalmist asks, answers the question, he says this, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. 
The sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's what the psalmist can render to God. He cannot pay God back. He cannot return the blessing he has received. The one thing the psalmist can do is thank God. The one thing he can do is offer from his heart the grateful praise of someone who knows he has received mercy. Friends, our passage today in Luke 17 is a living illustration of that sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's a living illustration of Psalm 116. Here in these verses, we witness an unlikely convert offer unexpected gratitude to an unthinkably merciful Savior. As you heard in the reading, ten lepers are cleansed by Jesus, and ten lepers go to the priest to make the necessary arrangements and sacrifices. But only one leper returns with the most important response. Only one leper comes back with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And this one leper is not a religiously observant Jew. He's a Samaritan. It's a stunning moment in Jesus' ministry. A despised foreigner who was just a few moments ago ceremonially unclean. He, of all the people in the Gospels, He is the one who offers the right response to Jesus. And that's the value of this passage, friends. By focusing on such an unlikely figure, the Lord Jesus is teaching us how we ought to respond to the mercy of God in our lives. As we witness this moment through the eyes of a Samaritan leper, we come to see, perhaps afresh, the profound mercy we have received from God. We appreciate anew how compassionate Christ has been towards us. And then with that mercy fresh in our minds, we're moved to offer the right response. We're moved to that sacrifice of thanksgiving that magnifies the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus. So here's our plan for this morning. It's a simple passage. My aim is rather simple. I want to stir your heart with renewed thanksgiving for the mercy of God in Christ. That's what I want to accomplish today, Lord willing. To say it another way, the goal of this sermon is to increase all of our gratitude for the gospel. The goal is to increase our gratitude for the gospel. To do that, we're going to focus on three truths from the three movements in this scene. The first has to do with mercy and focuses on Jesus. The second has to do with gratitude and focuses on the Samaritan. And then the third has to do with faith and it focuses on all of us who are hearing the Word of God. Mercy, gratitude, faith... That's the plan for this morning in hopes of increasing our gratitude for the gospel. We begin in verses 11 to 14 with the powerful mercy of the Savior. That's the first thing we ought to note. The powerful mercy of the Savior. As verse 11 reminds us, Jesus is still on the road to Jerusalem. He has been journeying towards the capital since chapter 9, and the references to Jerusalem will increase over the next few chapters, particularly chapters 18 and 19. The references to Jerusalem increase. That's not insignificant, friends. The repeated references to Jerusalem remind us that the cross is drawing ever closer to Jesus. This is why Jesus has come 
More than miracles, more than teaching, more than anything else, Jesus came to lay down His life. He came to bear the cross. And the cross is never far from Jesus' mind, and Luke wants it to be never far from your mind. This is why he's so persistent in saying Jesus was going to Jerusalem. It's not simply that Luke wants to keep us informed. It's that he wants us to see the cross. To understand this man Jesus, you must understand Him as the one who came to bear the cross. Verse 11 reminds us of that. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. But at this point in the journey, Jesus is met by an unexpected and for most people unwelcome group. Notice verse 12. And as Jesus entered a village, He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Leprosy is used to refer to a number of skin conditions in the Bible. The medical detail is not as, as important as the social cost. To be a leper was to be an outcast. You had to live outside the community, away from your family, away from the synagogue, away from the priests, away from everything that once defined your life. In fact, to have leprosy was to receive a new identity, one that you didn't want. Notice how the ten men are described in the passage. They're not ten men who have leprosy. They're ten lepers. That's who they are. It defines them. They're outcasts. But these particular lepers are bold. They stand at a distance as the law required them to do, and they cry out to Jesus. Notice their bold request, verse 13. They lifted up their voices saying, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus, by this point, has a reputation for mighty deeds. We've seen that all through the Gospel. These ten lepers have heard the report of Jesus as well. They've heard about this man, and they believe that He is able to help them. And so, they cry out for mercy. Master, have mercy on us. What is mercy? We ask. What is mercy? It's the expression of compassion. It's a loving kind of pity. Not pity that makes a person feel small, but pity that enters into a person's life in order to bring comfort. The most important thing about mercy is that it's unexpected and unearned. You cannot show mercy out of obligation. You can only show mercy to those who don't deserve it. You could even put it more strongly. Mercy can only be shown to those who have no ability to pay you back. Undeserved love, unexpected kindness, unearned compassion. Friends, that's mercy according to the Bible. So when these lepers ask Jesus for mercy, they are expressing on some level their dependence on the Lord for what they don't deserve. They are confessing to Jesus, we can't help ourselves. We're desperate, but we have nothing to offer you. Be merciful to us. And in that sense, they believe that Jesus is greater than their leprosy. They believe that the power of Christ is greater than the depth of their need. They cry out for mercy, asking the Lord to heal them. And Jesus responds. It's remarkable, really. Notice the powerful mercy that is very quietly displayed in verse 14. When Jesus saw them, He said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest." And as they went, they were cleansed. Friends, two important things happen in verse 14. For one, Jesus displays His submission to the law. 
The law of Moses required that a priest verify a person's recovery from leprosy. Leviticus 13 gives you a long list of prescriptions. You can go read it. One of the prescriptions is that a priest had to certify that you were clean. So by sending the men to the priests, Jesus demonstrates His submission to the law of Moses. Jesus follows the Word of God. But at the same time, Jesus also displays His superiority to the law. The lepers are cleansed as they go, Luke writes. In other words, it wasn't the priest who cleansed them, it was Jesus. It wasn't a sacrifice that gave them mercy, it was Jesus. Jesus does what the law could not. He cleanses those who cannot cleanse themselves. Jesus shows mercy where the law could show no mercy. The law could protect you from catching leprosy, but the law couldn't cleanse you if you got it. Jesus, on the other hand, cleanses the unclean. His mercy is not only available, it is powerful and it's able to heal even those who have no way of healing themselves. That's the takeaway from this scene, friends, these verses. You might think in verses 11 to 14 that the point here is to be merciful like Jesus is merciful. You might think when you read these verses, be like Jesus. Be merciful to those in need. And while that response is not wrong, it's also not the point of these verses. The call is not to be merciful like Jesus. The call is to recognize that you need Jesus' mercy. That He's merciful to you and to me. We're sinners. When you read these verses, you're not on the sidelines saying, well, notice what He did. I should be more like that. That's not you. You're one of the ten lepers. You need mercy too. I need mercy. This is a picture of Christ's heart for sinners. We too were unclean and helpless apart, apart from Christ's. We too were outcasts in the sight of God, separated from God in our sin. And yet, with powerful mercy, Christ has cleansed us by His Word. Christ has shown us compassion and given us the undeserved love of God in the Gospel. The application is not be like Jesus. The application is praise Jesus. Think of that wonderful reversal that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2. You remember that? We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked hopeless on our own. But then verse 4 says, but God being rich in what? Mercy. You can say it. Mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us made us alive together with Christ. The ten lepers are not simply a picture of Jesus' power, period. They're a picture of Jesus' power to save, period. He cleanses those who cannot cleanse themselves. He saves those whose only hope is the mercy of God. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. Whatever sin you bring to Christ, His mercy is powerful enough to cleanse you. He didn't just cleanse one leper. He cleansed ten. No sin is too great for the mercy of God in Christ. Let me say that again because that's one of those sentences that good Christians hear and forget too quickly. No sin is too great for the mercy of God in Christ. Whatever it is that you walked in with today, Christ will cleanse you when you come to Him in faith.
The lepers in Luke 17 show us the powerful mercy of the Savior. How should we respond? We just talked about the things we ought not to do. What should we do? How should we respond? When we taste this powerful mercy, what should we do? That's where we turn next. Verses 15 and 16, we see the grateful praise of the redeemed. The grateful praise of the redeemed. One leper comes back, Luke tells us, and he returns armed with the right perspective. Notice verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. So this, this man recognizes what has happened. God has healed him. Luke doesn't tell us precisely when it happened, but it happened. God has healed him. And you can imagine the moment, or maybe you haven't tried, but now you could. I like to try to imagine what these moments are like. So maybe the, maybe the ten lepers were walking away from Jesus, and this one looked down at that moment and noticed that his hands weren't covered in sores anymore. Or maybe his steps didn't hurt because his skin wasn't cracking with each step down the road. Whenever it happened, the guy looked down and he realized, I'm, I'm clean. I'm healed. And at that moment, as his body was restored, he saw the truth. Only God could do such a thing. Only God could heal me. God has cleansed this man. And so the man turns back, praising God as he looks for Jesus. It's the right, it's the right perspective. Praise be to God. Then something remarkable happens. It's one of those moments in the Gospels that are easy to overlook, but are often full of significance. Something remarkable happens. As the man praises God, he falls down at Jesus' feet. Listen again, verse 16. He returns praising God, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving Jesus thanks. Friends, the connection between verse 15 and verse 16 is part of the mystery of the Gospel. Do you, do you see the connection? Verse 15, the man is praising God because God has healed him. And verse 16, he gives thanks to Jesus. The connection is that God is working in and through Jesus. The Samaritan sees what so many in Israel refuse to see. He sees that Jesus is the one through whom the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is the uniquely anointed one of God. The Samaritan sees the truth. Praise be to God and thanks to Jesus. Now at this point, someone is going to say, wait a second, Jeff. There are lots of miracles like this in the Old Testament, even miracles of people being cleansed of leprosy. And nobody tried to say that the prophet and God were super close connected. Elisha, for example, cleansed Naaman of his leprosy. And nobody suggested that Elisha was the uniquely anointed one of God. Nobody suggested that Elisha was the Messiah. So what makes this miracle unique? What makes Jesus unique? That's an excellent question. Let's take the story from Elisha's ministry as an example. I just read it this week in my Bible plan. Some of you probably read it too. It's fresh on my mind. 2 Kings chapter 5. 
is the story Naaman, the Syrian general, has leprosy. And one of his servants says, you should go see the man of God in Israel. And so he goes to see Elisha, and Elisha prescribes healing for Naaman. Do you remember what the prescription was? Elisha told Naaman to dip himself in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman begrudgingly did that, and he was healed. In God's providence, the river was the mechanism of divine healing. What happens in Luke 17? Basic Bible study tool. you got two stories that sound similar. How are they similar, and how are they different? How is Jesus' story different? How is Luke 17 different? Jesus doesn't use a river. He uses His Word. With only His command, Jesus heals the lepers. Do you see the difference? The Old Testament prophets mediated the power of God. Jesus embodies the power of God. It's the difference between representation, the prophets, and incarnation, Jesus. The prophets spoke the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Made flesh for us and for our salvation. That's why the progression from verse 15 to verse 16 is so significant. Praise be to God and thanks to Jesus Christ. It's a stunning confession of the truth. Jesus receives what rightly belongs only to God. And He receives it willingly. How is that possible? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. This confession is all the more stunning consider who, considering who makes it. Luke is very clear. Look at the end of verse 16. Now he was a Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans, considering them heretical deviants from the true faith. In fact, most Jews would go out of their way to avoid Samaritans altogether. And yet here we have a Samaritan offering the right response to Jesus. What the Pharisees won't see, a Samaritan sees. What so many in Israel won't do, the Samaritan does. Friends, that's a reminder to us that the kingdom of God often shows up in surprising places in surprising ways. The kingdom of God often shows up in surprising ways. Ways. If you were writing the story of Jesus' ministry, you would not pick Samaritans and tax collectors and fishermen to be the exemplary figures. That's not how anybody would write the story. But that's the kingdom of God, isn't it? It comes in surprising ways. In fact, everything about God's kingdom is upside down compared to the ways of this world. How do you save your life in God's kingdom? By losing it. How do, you de- how do you demonstrate greatness? By becoming a servant. How do you attain riches? By losing everything on earth for heavenly treasure. How does God defeat death? Through death. How is Jesus, the Son of God, revealed in glory? Through the shame of the cross. Everything in the kingdom of God is upside down compared to the ways of this world. Friends, why would it be any different in your life or mine? Everything about the kingdom of God is surprising on some level. And so it is in this text, a Samaritan of all people is the one who offers grateful praise to God in Christ. A Samaritan of all people. Friends, that's more than a coincidence. There are no coincidences in the Bible. 
It's more than a coincidence. It's more than a neat literary feature. It's actually intended to get your attention when you read the story. When, when it's a Samaritan who is grateful, the effect ought to be, am I grateful? The Samaritan does what the, what the Israelites won't do. Am, am I grateful? That's the effect of this passage. It's so unexpected, it disarms you. And it leads you to ask that spirit-intended question, what about my heart? What about the state of my soul? What is my response? Am I grateful to God for the mercy He has given me in Christ? The reality is we can't make ourselves feel gratitude. It's not something that you can simply conjure up through willpower. Gratitude grows the more we see the depth of our need combined with the grace of God. Again, we just said that everything about the kingdom of God is upside down from the ways of this world. Here's another example. Grateful Christians are often those who are most deeply aware of their own sin because they see themselves rightly and then they feel gratitude rightly for what God has done. Grateful Christians are those who have spent hours in God's Word marveling at the fact that Christ would lay aside His glory in order to enter the muck and the mire of our fallen world. And Jesus didn't just enter our world, friends. He took on our flesh. He knew our weakness. He bore our sin at the cross. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Gratitude springs from a heart that is steeped in the Gospel. Friends, how long has it been since you've just paused for five minutes out of this breakneck world, for just five minutes, and reflected on the fact that God has been merciful to you, a sinner? Before we jump into the rest of our Bible study, before we get all tied up in all the details of the interesting connections that we might make in the passage that we're looking at, do we just pause and say, thank you, God, that you've been merciful to me, a sinner. Friends, gratitude is often found in those folks who know their sin most deeply because it causes them to cherish the Savior most deeply as well. The reality is we need the Gospel far more than we realize. My sin against God is far worse than I have ever imagined. My hopelessness apart from Christ is far deeper than anything I have ever conceived. Even at the moments in my life when I have been the most broken over the most wicked things I have ever done, that is a fraction of what my sin is actually like before God. My need for the Gospel is far deeper than what I even know. And that means that the grace of Christ is far more amazing than I have ever understood. His mercy is more to us, just like that song we like to sing. And it's not just more than our sin, praise God, that is true, but God's mercy in Christ is more than I have yet tasted. There's more to be seen. One of my favorite moments in all of the Bible is the end of the book of Job, when Job has been complaining and he wants God to answer him, and then God shows up and answers him. Pro tip, don't ever ask for God to answer you with that kind of attitude. Because he shows up in a tornado. 
And it's terrifying. God shows up and He answers Job. And God describes all the things that He is like. And then He says, these are just the fringes of my ways. This is just the topsoil of what I'm like. There's more to God than what you know. Friends, the same is true of the Gospel. There's far more grace and glory and goodness in the Gospel than what we realize. Gratitude flows from a heart that knows very keenly, apart from Christ, I have nothing. So let's take this exhortation from an unlikely person, an unlikely Samaritan. His example is a challenge to us to see the true depth of Christ's mercy to sinners like you and me. And in seeing that mercy, we give God thanks. That brings us to the end of the text. The final truth from this passage, verses 17 to 19. Here we see the clear call to saving faith. Mercy, gratitude. Here at the end, the clear call to saving faith. Jesus Himself emphasizes the surprising nature of what just happened. Notice Jesus' question, verse 17. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Jesus is right, isn't He? He knows, he knows that there were ten. And yet the other nine have not come back. Why not? Well, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly, but their absence is striking. And it, their absence highlights the one who did come back, the Samaritan. Jesus highlights that as well. Look at verse 18. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Friends, in the flow of Luke's gospel, that's a rebuke to Israel and to her spiritual leadership. Chapter after chapter, this is what we have witnessed. Many in Israel reject Jesus, the one for whom they were waiting. And that rejection is the fiercest among the ones who should know better among the religious leadership. They don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. So by asking this question, Jesus is not trying to put down Samaritans. Don't overread Jesus. He's not, he's not demeaning Samaritans. He's rebuking the nation of Israel. The Samaritan is the foil in the story that highlights Israel's spiritual blindness. And therefore, God is doing something new in and through Jesus. It's another theological point we should make here. God is doing something new in and through Jesus. He is establishing a new covenant that will gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including Samaritans and people from the very ends of the earth. And in that sense, the question of verse 18 lifts our eyes up to see the bigger picture of what God is doing in Christ. That's important, brothers and sisters. What an encouraging reminder this is that the purpose of God cannot be stopped. The Pharisees may reject Jesus, but God's plan cannot be thwarted. He will gather His people to Himself. God will fulfill His purpose for the Messiah. God's purpose can't be stopped. Not by Satan, not by Rome, not even by unbelief. God's kingdom will come and Christ will reign. The unlikely Samaritan Reminds us of that. And so Jesus closes by commending the Samaritan for his faith. Verse 19, Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. 
Remember that ten lepers were cleansed, but only this one leper comes back. Is Jesus saying that the other nine did not have true faith? Is Jesus saying that the Samaritan truly believes, whereas the other nine did not? Yes, that's how I think you should take this verse. Yes. The phrase in verse 19 is the same phrase that was used back in chapter 7 with the woman whose sins were forgiven. Do you remember that? The sinful woman comes to Jesus and Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you, chapter 7. Here in chapter 19, He says, your faith has made you well. But it's the same exact phrase. We just translate it differently in the ESV for some reason. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. In other words, the Samaritan leper, by faith, saw more than what the other nine saw. He trusted Jesus in a way that they did not. For the other nine, it appears that healing was their highest desire. And once they were healed, they were content. But for the Samaritan, the healing was used by God to open his eyes to see the truth about this man Jesus. And seeing that truth, by grace, the Samaritan believed. And so, we're reminded at this point that being acquainted with Jesus is not the same as trusting Jesus with saving faith. The other nine were acquainted with Jesus, but the one trusted Him. Being acquainted with Jesus is not the same as trusting Jesus. You may even derive some benefit from Jesus, some pearl of wisdom from His Word, for example, that helps you in your life. But that is not the same as trusting Christ with your eternal soul. That's not the same as casting yourself on Christ and on His mercy. Not just for physical healing, but salvation and eternal life. Being acquainted with Jesus is not the same as trusting Jesus. And that's where we end this morning, because that's where the passage ends. You may be here this this morning, you may have come to church, and, and you may consider that you are well acquainted with Jesus. You go to church, you know the Bible stories, you consider yourself a good person who tries to do what is right, you can even quote some Scripture passages. But friend, that's, friends, that's not the same as saving faith. Saving faith is a gift from God that banks everything on Christ and on Christ alone. Saving faith is not merely acquainted with Jesus. Saving faith confesses to Jesus, I'm a sinner who deserves hell, and apart from you, I have nothing. Be merciful to me. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ, then consider the testimony of an unlikely convert on the road to Jerusalem in Luke 17. Christ is merciful and mighty to save. His mercy and His grace cannot be stopped, not by Satan, not by sin. He will redeem His people, and He stands ready to receive those who trust in His name. And so God's Word is saying to you, if you're not a Christian, won't you trust in Christ today? Being acquainted with Jesus is not the same as trusting Jesus. Trust in Christ today. Saving faith leads to grateful praise And God's Word is calling you this morning, if you're not a Christian, to trust in the Lord Jesus. What can we render to God 
for all of his benefits? What sacrifice can we return to him? There's, there's nothing we can do to pay him back. It would lessen God's glory if we could pay him back. Instead, like the psalmist in Psalm 116 and like the Samaritan in Luke 17, all we can do is offer to God our sacrifice of thanksgiving. The Savior's mercy is powerful. He's able to cleanse the worst of sinners. The redeemed heart is a grateful heart, praising God for His mercy in Christ. And the faith that saves is more than acquaintance. It's more than familiarity. It's complete confidence in Christ alone. So may our lives be marked by that sacrifice of thanksgiving. And through our thanksgiving, may God be glorified in His Son and through His Spirit. Amen. Friends, let's pray. Father, help us now. We need the gospel far more than we recognize. And so we pray, Lord, that you would please deepen our awareness of our need for you so that our hearts might overflow with gratitude and praise that can only come from the lives of those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that the Lord is merciful that the Lord is gracious, that the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. Help us, God. We want to be like the Samaritan in this passage who offers grateful praise to God, and we know, Father, that we cannot do that on our own. Please, Lord, bear fruit in our lives from the Holy Spirit, from Your Word, so that our lives might be marked by the same kind of gratitude that rejoices in the Gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.